This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio, the late show. We've got Doug Lamov, who's going to be joining us in about five minutes' time, maybe less than that. Absolutely delighted uh, to be able to do the show tonight. In case any of you don't know who Doug Lamov is, uh, Doug is the author of the international bestseller Teach Like a Champion, which originally came out in 2010. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Um, it's now in its 3.0 version, so it's had three amalgamations. Uh, the Coach's Guide to Teaching, and he's got a new book coming out called Reconnect, Building School Culture for Meaning, Purpose, and Belonging. Um, he's also the co-author uh, with the Teach Like a Champion colleagues of Practice Perfect Reading, Reconsidered, and Teaching in the Online Classroom. Essentially, he is a serial author and edu thinker, blogger, and trendsetter, I guess you could call him. So I'm really excited. The format for the show tonight, um, I'm going to be putting to him the original Teach Like a Champion strategies, not all of them, uh, because there's nearly 50 of them. Um, but I'm going to be putting to him some of the ones that I think are the most interesting in terms of the way in which they have molded or influenced education debate um, and even pedagogy in the classroom. Um, so I'll be going through my selection, if you like, of the original Teach Like a Champion strategies, putting them to Doug, letting him maybe talk a little bit about them, ask him some questions on them, and then hopefully we can we can all engage in a little bit more um, deep discussion on those strategies and how they actually work in practice. Um, and I've got lots of other questions to ask him, um, the usual mundane ones about his life. I'm sure he'll, he'll love those questions. He'll love them. But I've got some quick fire questions to ask him. And then at the end, we've also got some general education stuff um to ask him too and i can see he's just joined so we've just requested you in doug so feel free to um hit accept and we'll let you in as quick as we possibly can just while we're doing that um this show wouldn't be possible without with group um they support all teachers talk radio shows and they're a leading provider of specialist education and care um i know lucy will be pinning some information about with this group into the space very soon. So if you want to check out the webinars, for example, that they've got coming up, they've got some brilliant webinars um, that are all free. Um, if you go to witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash events, you can find those events and then you can actually sign up for them for free. Most of them cost nothing. And um, the, the level of expertise there is, is phenomenal. Um, we've got other sponsors too, and I'll be talking about them later on in the show but without further ado doug can you hear us just hit that there we go yeah i can hear you hi tom nice to talk to you today good evening and again all, and all I know, listeners yes i know you were kind enough to come on my show i think that was last year when we were talking about remote learning obviously tonight's going to be a little bit different um because and, and i know you've probably done this a million times before doug in a million different iterations but i thought for our listeners in a, in a chunk of the show, we could go through the original 
teach like a champion strategies and talk a little bit about those, how they actually work in practice, how they could influence classroom practice, if that's okay with you. Sounds great. Okay. Um, before we do any of that, I've already given you a little introduction there. Um, I've talked about the, the the books that you've already written. You've got a new one coming out. Um, the coaches, uh, sorry, reconnect, building school culture for meaning, purpose, and belonging. That's in the iteration. When does that come out, Doug? Is that soon? It yeah, it's, uh, a couple of people have actually got their copies, so uh, it's out, it's out this week or next wow. week. It's the date I've been given is the 18th, which is tomorrow, but it seems like there's, you know, you never really know with Amazon, so it seems like they're shipping. Yeah. yeah. So, so you're, I mean, I described you as a serial author. Um, so what, what it, it does not feel, it does not feel like I'm that. sure it, it must do at some point. You must, you must sometimes just sit there and be like, I have written so much. <laughs> like, uh, it seems like I get slower and slower at it every time I try to write a book. I don't know. Each time I write a book, I'm like, this is the last one for sure. Yeah. And then, and then another one yeah, kind then. of buzzes into your head and you're like, I have to write this down. Um, I'm going to ask you the quick fire questions, Doug, um, if that's okay, okay to start with. Um, so where did you grow up? I grew up just outside Washington, D.C. in a town called Bethesda, Maryland, uh, before that sort of in, in part of uh, Washington, D.C. So uh, the nation's capital. Lovely. And when you were a child, did you ever envisage that you would be doing an interview like this? I did not. Uh, <laughs> in any way, did I envision the internet? No. Uh, <laughs> I suppose what I mean by that is, did you ever see yourself being somebody who has influenced so many people in, in what they've done? You know, I was, I was, a, I always thought of myself that I was a bit of an underachiever and thought of myself as a kind of a ne'er do well. I had, uh, I have an older sister who I love who's, um, who's brilliant and, um, everything she did was gold in high school. Uh, and, you know, growing up and I was sort of, a uh, the child who my parents were trying to figure out what was wrong with me. Uh, but I think a lot of, you know, where even some things about teach like a champion come from that. I was a real student of the dynamics of school. Uh, you know, I remember in middle school trying to figure out how, you know, uh, trying to figure out how to, how to present myself and what the norms were and what the dynamics were. You know, I, I, I think inside I, I was quite a nerdy person and I was hoping that no one would, no one else would see me that way. I don't think I fooled anyone, but I spent Did a lot you? of time in school, you know, walking from class to class with a, you know, with like, without a notebook and with like a stub of a pencil and a piece of paper jammed in my pocket. So no one would know that I had an inner intellectual life. I, again, I don't think I succeeded, but you know, um, I think I was really attentive to the norms of school, even from a young age, maybe, maybe, yeah. everyone, maybe everyone feels that way. My, my, my N on that data set is one. So. Yeah. Did you, did you enjoy school? No. Um, <laughs> I mean, occasionally I had a teacher who likes, like so many who, you know, who lit the world on fire me for me. And then, uh, you know, then I'd say, like, you know, I truly loved it. But I think um, much of the time I, um, I struggled to feel connected to school until I got to, you know, university, college, and then I really fell in love with it, with it. But I think that I was a, um, uh, was waiting to feel a sense of belonging in school for much of my much of my time there. 
the best job you've ever had? Uh, wow. Well, just, just parent count. Cause that's the, yeah. <laughs> that's the, yeah. I mean, we'll it, let you have that one. Yeah. I mean, it's, the, it's the, you know, it's the most meaningful thing. And uh, certainly in my life, and I, I think it can, you know, I love the job that I have now. I feel really lucky to have it. I have a great team of people that I work with and I get to spend my time thinking about things that are fascinating to me, but also like, I think a, a big part of the reason that I do it, you know, I just, I think, uh, family is the most important thing in my life. And I just think a lot about you know, what it means to send, <clears throat> if you're, if you're, you know, a parent who sends their child to a school that doesn't, uh, what it's like to send your child to a school where either A, they're not safe or B, more importantly, they're, you know, your dreams for them are, are rapidly slipping away because the school doesn't, uh, doesn't have the same dreams and expectations for them. So I think a lot of my work is also about just the kid, like wanting to have, you know, wanting the best for my own children and that being a big part of my life and wanting to make sure that other people have that as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you think that when you say kind of, I mean, how, how do you as a parent go about, mm. what are your kind of signals without going into a school and yeah. without actually sitting there in classrooms? What, what, how do you know the thing that you've just said? Whether my child's school is serving their serving their interests and, and helping them to unlock their best self and that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Well, so it's, I think it's, it's, I think it's scary because so often you don't know, you know, you re, you rely on snippets of information, a lot of self-report from my kid. You know, fortunately my, um, I think I'm very close to my kids and we talk a lot and I think they share a lot of information, both their interests and their frustrations. And they're very, the three of them are very different kids, I would say. Um, but you know, you're always, you're always guessing. And one of the challenges for me has always been, you know, when I want to find out more about, their school um sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's not <laughs> you know I, I remember um when my my oldest is my son and when he was in primary school you know i wanted to drop in on class and you know just see what his school life was like and the school it's like we really you know there's really one one week a year when when we welcome you to come visit and the rest of the time we're sorry but it's a I think what they said was privacy violation for the uh, for the other parents if you come visit class. And I was like, How? you know, I, I work in schools and, I, and I'm pretty sure that's not actually an accurate uh, description. The, they're sort of describing this um, uh, law about sort of privacy of educational information that somehow I would see special education children in the classroom and I don't know do some terrible thing with that information about other people's children. Oh, I just wanted to see what's happening to my child, you know. But I just thought that. That was always a really profound experience for me when I, when I ran schools, you know, one of our rules was you can come visit anytime, any day, you should be able to walk in. And, and if, if a parent wants to come see what's happening with their child in school, I mean, first of all, fantastic. What, what more would you want for the parent who wants to see what your, what their child does all day? You know, yeah. there's some rules for what you can do and can't do in class. I can tell you some stories about some, <laughs> some parents who weren't totally clear on what those rules were, but, um, but, you know, I think it's a, that's a great thing. And I think, you know, schools should be more open and transparent to parents. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, what's your favorite, I, I mean, this might be a difficult one, but your favorite all time quote, do you have one? Wow. Um, I'm sure I do, <laughs> <clears throat> but I'm obviously freezing on it now. Uh, <laughs> or just one that you like. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I, <clears throat> I, I, this is a very common quote, uh, but you know, it's, it's a, 
bastardization of what Aristotle may or may not have said, but um, we are what we repeatedly do, you know, that we're the sum of our habits. Um, I've always found that profoundly thought-provoking and interesting. So uh, maybe that's one that I can one that I can start with. And as when I think of something much better, either during the interview or, or more likely afterwards, I'll I'll tweet some quotes at you that are <laughs> more that are more relevant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. These ones, these one get these ones get a bit silly now. Um, okay, so that's just, better. I'm better. I'm better with silly questions than with you know. Okay. These these are like these are like and or ones. So okay. USA or UK. Uh, are we talking football here? We're we talking, talking anything. <laughs> We're talking anything. It's just USA or UK. If you answer. Well, I'll just, I'll try to answer that question. Uh, I'll try to avoid the question by saying I'm on a, I'm on a plane tomorrow to come back to the UK. And oh wow! I love I love coming to the UK. Every time I come to the UK, I'm happy. I love being there, and uh, I love my country. But every time I come back from the UK, I try to convince my wife that we should uh, we should move there temporarily, and she says no. Um, so I would say both. Interesting. Um, Johnny Cash or Jerry Lee Lewis? Oh, wow. Um, I, uh, I mean, it's, gonna... it's, don't worry, you're not going to fail the test if, if you, you know, if you get one of the, there isn't a wrong or right answer. I mean, you get this, as I said before, as a mediocre student and everything, I can't get, can't get the answer to one of the questions. Out of myself. I'm going to go Johnny Cash on that one, just out of respect. Yeah. have teamed up with the Witherslack Group to bring you a fantastic face-to-face meetup in Manchester next month. Tickets are free with lunch included and you'll be met with a host of amazing speakers. Sign up for your voice now at witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash your voice 2022. Hi, I'm Charlie Burley, the Teacher's Health Coach, and I want to talk to you about the first ever health and wellbeing event for educators rewriting well-being it's a full day dedicated to improving your health as a teacher through looking at your nutrition movement mindset workload and well-being in school you'll hear from our incredible lineup of speakers including andrew cowley jen foster kimberly wilson simon bolger and many more there'll be talks workshops and time to network with like-minded colleagues we'll look after you all day with brunch lunch and all the refreshments You'll get to meet our incredible speakers and our amazing team of ambassadors from the education space. It's a non-profit event with all proceeds going to the amazing education charity EdSupport. This isn't one to miss. I look forward to seeing you there on the 22nd of October at Etc Venues St Paul's in London. You can search Rewriting Wellbeing on the Eventbrite website to find out more. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News.
Friday the 14th of October saw many schools mark Restart a Heart Day 2022. In Yorkshire, thousands of children across the county took part in events, learning vital life-saving skills. The Yorkshire Ambulance Service ran events designed to improve cardiac arrest survival rates, visiting 136 secondary schools and training more than 30,000 students. A spokesman for the service said that since the launch of the programme in 2014, bystander CPR rates in Yorkshire have increased from 39.9 to 74.9%. Across all four home nations, the British Heart Foundation and the Resuscitation Council UK have worked with a range of partners to ensure that more and more people can learn how to save a life. The official Restarter Heart Day was the 16th of October 2022. The I newspaper reports on news that the UK's largest teaching union, the NEU, has announced that it will hold a formal ballot for strike action, with a timetable for potential walkouts to be announced in the next few days. The union represents more than 450,000 teaching staff across the country and said it would move ahead with proceedings after it said the government had failed to respond to its calls for an above-inflation pay rise for teachers. A preliminary ballot showed that 98% support a pay rise above the current inflation rate of 10%. The government has offered a rise of 5% for most teachers. The ballot also showed that 86% of teacher members said they were willing to take strike action. The NESUWT has also announced that it will pursue strike action over pay. FE Week focuses on criticism of of exam board decisions to raise fees by up to 17%. It says that schools and colleges face having to pay out tens of thousands of pounds more in GCSE and A-level fees. Exam boards at Excel and OCR have raised fees for all 2023 exams by 6%, whilst England's largest exam board, AQA, has hiked prices by between 5 and 17%. AQA remains the board with the lowest prices overall. Exam boards say they need to hike prices in order to cover costs, while school leaders say the rises are inappropriate at a time when school leaders battle with rising energy and staffing costs. Comments from all boards indicate that whilst they understand schools and colleges are stretched, they try to offer as much value for money as possible and try to keep fees low. In Jersey, the government has pledged to expand its school meal programme to all public primary schools if the £1.6 million funding plan is approved by ministers. The money will be used to create new facilities to store and serve meals, as well as food itself. Chief Minister, Deputy Christina Moore, says the plan shows government commitment to supporting children and families, especially as the cost of living crisis continues. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to look at keeping your phone charged should power cuts be introduced. Coming home to no power between 4 and 7pm may be something we have to learn to live with as the winter approaches. We can live without most things. However, for most, our mobile phone is the main point of contact. With being in work all day and no means of charging once home, will your phone last that extra bit of time? Before I begin, this is not an advert, so there'll be no brand names mentioned just a look at the technology available to extend the uptime of your phone to keep you connected with your friends and family. 
The power bank is the obvious choice for extending the charge of your phone. They've come on a lot since they were first introduced. When buying, consider the technology your phone has. If it has an induction charger, meaning you just put your phone on a pad to charge, there are rechargeable induction chargers available. They're like a little backpack for your phone. They come with a stick-on magnet or will connect via an existing magnetic connection if you should have one built in. They can allow simple and secure connections to the charge. Just be aware, some magnetic connections are weakened by the type of case you have on your phone. If you want something more multi-purpose, there are several other types of power bank available. Some double up as torches and hand warmers. However, if you spent the day keeping your hands warm, there won't be much left for you to charge your phone at the end of the day. The next thing to consider while you're making your choices is the capacity of the charge they can hold. This is measured in MAH or milliamp hours. The bigger the number, the more charge it will hold and therefore the longer it will last before recharging. Usually this relates to the cost and also the overall size and weight of the device. To give an example, a 2000 milliamp hour battery will provide approximately twice the charging time as a 1000 milliamp hour battery. Basically what I'm saying is, if you're wanting to charge your device several times throughout the day, then you'll want a large milliamp hour capacity. Finally, if you're going to use a power bank, remember they take time to charge too. So make sure you get into a routine so you're not caught out. Do you already have a power bank? I'd love to hear from you. Why not tell us at TT Radio 2022? I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. You can't beat cash. You've got to respect. Um, beer or wine? Beer. Dancing or singing? I finally, I just want to say, I finally, oh, go got, on. I finally got one. <laughs> yes, you did. Well done. Gold star. Um, dancing or singing? Am I, am I, the, is it other people dancing and singing or me dancing and singing? You dancing or singing? I think in the, in, well, the question is, which is more painful for the audience? I'd say, <laughs> I'm a terrible dancer, but I'm a worse singer. So I'm going to go dance and dancing is more of a judgment free zone. So I'm going to go with dancing on this one. Respect. But only, only in the, only in the kitchen with, uh, with my family around. Interesting. Um, trad or prog? Oh, wow. I mean, uh, I can't answer this one or, you know, it'll be... <laughs> I, I, I would say um, neither, but I do, I love, I, I do love traditions, not more talking specifically about like, edu- I, I try to avoid educational labels and, you know, I don't... Yeah like to be penned in them but i I do love i find that i love traditions and rituals and i think there's immense value in them that is easy to easy to overlook so um let's just like make that disconnected from the world you know from implications of what that means about classroom practice trad interesting um right this isn't it i don't know whether this is a uk centric one but i don't think it is silent or quiet corridors Hmm. Either schools, either okay. Direct instruction or discovery learning. Direct instruction with uh, well, well implemented direct instruction with uh, you know along the lines of Rosenshine's principles of how to do it well. Got you. And final one from my silly questions to start with. Well, this one isn't so silly. It's quite. I was expecting a lot sillier. I'm just going to. Yeah, I know. Well, okay, let's throw another silly one in for the hell of it. Dogs or cats? Mm, um, dogs. Yes. I need. We all well, uh, see. We we have a rabbit at our house, so maybe I have to go rabbit. <laughs> Careful. And by the way, can I say that I've lost and I've lost my my. I used to have an office where I wrote at home, and then my wife got my daughters a rabbit, and now. 
my office is the rabbit's office. So I, I'm an itinerant writer now, thanks to the rabbit, but I still love him. So that's, that's nice. Thank you for telling us that. That's, that's great. Share, this is the kind of, this is the kind of details that I'm sure people are showing up for. <laughs> exactly. Um, one change you'd make, if this is a slightly more serious one, one change you'd make if you were education secretary tomorrow or education, I don't even know what it's called in the US, but educa education uh, secretary. Uh, yeah. Intentional, cohesive, knowledge-based curriculum, particularly in English classes. Okay. Why particularly in English classes? I think that um, I think that a lot. Men, I think that many people have sort of lost their sense for what the purpose of English class is. Uh, and, you know, I think a lot of this is in the book, Reading Reconsider, where the idea is that, like, we'll read books and it doesn't really matter what books we read as long as we're asking questions about books and we're discussing them, that's fine. And that somehow there are these set of transferable skills that if I learn to make an inference from one book, I will suddenly be able to make inferences from other books. If I learn to infer vocabulary meaning, meaning of a word in one sentence, I'll be able to infer it from, you know, infer every vocabulary word from uh, every sentence that I read for the rest of my life, let's just close our eyes for a second and imagine that beautiful, beautiful dream. And then let's, then let's open them and, and just recognize that that's at odds with what cognitive scientists, science tells us about how learning works. And even, you know, what, what, um, what the purpose of, 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 you know, of English classes is, I think there's something so profound about one shared discussion that like all of us reading the same book is a profound experience of intellectual growth by hearing other people's perspectives. And I, you know, I won't speak for the UK, but I will say that in the US right now, we desperately need to like be able to listen better to other people's perspectives and hear them and uh, uh, starting with, you know, their experiences in a shared text, but also the emotional experience of reading a story together and having a shared emotional response to it. You know, stories started around the, you know, what wasn't even a campfire was like the home, you know, the home fire of like, we at night told stories about our experiences to acculturate one another and to cement our belonging in groups. And I just think that shared experience of storytelling is profoundly important, especially if the book is going to survive its death struggle with the cell phone. And so I think reading together uh, and reading from the same book is so important. And, you know, there's so many classes in the U.S. where the narrative is kids don't read much anymore. If we let them choose their books, they will love reading more. And so every kid has their own book, which is, you know, the, the book that they can imagine based on their limited experience in the world. And they're off in the corner of the classroom reading it by themselves. I just think that's a profoundly lonely and atomized conception of what we're doing when we're, when we're reading so I just, uh, you know, I think a book that we read together and explore and where our goal is to increase our knowledge so that we understand why this is a great and profound book that can help us see the world differently and that we engage in that journey together. Um, I think that's a, that's a beautiful model. And I think that it's, um, it's increasingly rare. Yeah. So you think, you think it's become more rare to read a book communally? in a classroom is that what what you're saying yes yeah and why do you think that is well i think a lot some of it has to do with you know just lack of like of clarity about what we're doing does it does it matter what book we read does it matter we all read the same book 
um, you know, I think the idea of, of just, and as long as you're reading something, you're reading the most optimal things in the most optimal setting. I think that's sort of one narrative. And I think the other narrative is anxiety about the fact that young people don't, well, people don't read as much. But I think a lot of times the solutions to that problem actually exacerbate it as opposed to solve it. So I'm guessing you'd be a supporter of, of schools where, you know, particularly in English, for example, they would have a period of time in every or nearly every lesson where they would have like either communal reading or silent reading or something like that for a set period. Especially, or... especially communal reading. I've just, I've just finished. I mean, I, I was I've for a long time been a believer in the powerful, the powerful importance of fluency in reading comprehension that in the end, you know, so much of students difficulty with reading comes down to the fact that they can't read at the speed of sight. But Christopher Such's book, uh, The Art and Science of Teaching Primary Reading is just, is a, is a really fantastic resource for, uh, for teachers out there about how important fluency is. And so not just silent reading, but reading aloud together, um, working on our fluency, but also making the shared emotional experience of the book legible in public. So like we're laughing together, we're gasping together. We're, you know, uh, I think that is a, that is a profoundly important piece of the reading equation. So I'm all for, I'm all for communal books. And, and interestingly, one of the schools that I ran very, very early in my running at, this is a school in, in Rochester, not in upstate New York. In addition to reading class, we had a 25 minute block every day. It was called book club. And all we did was we got together in groups. It was about 12 to 14 kids with a staff member, we read aloud um, phase reading or control the game style from the book as a group. The teacher would pause occasionally to ask questions, but mostly it was just a shared read aloud. And we did that for 25 minutes a day, every day. Kids read in the course of the year, eight, 10, 12 books, depending on which group that they were in, which is, you know, in many cases, their kids in the previous year had read no books or one book. And so suddenly they were just reading, um, copious <laughs> copious amounts and enjoying books and the book was coming to life and it was a shared social experience and they were watching other students uh enjoy books and so not only do i think that like there was a profound reading culture that came out of that experience but in terms of just the results on assessments it was the best year that we ever had yeah interesting uh listen i'm going to give a shout out to some of our listeners doug we've got loads of people uh listening at the moment so shout out to uh mr pusley who is here uh noreen rob darren leslie uh zara is here lawrence brent p uh we've got mr c miss kendall miss evans we've got miss bb we've got uh haroon mansoor hello alex R, good evening to you. Jan, regular listener. Good evening, Jan. Hannah, also regular listener. Good evening to you, Hannah. Uh, we've got Lee, Rebecca, Rich, Tim J. We've got somebody. I mean, this profile picture looks a bit like me, the right learning company. So good, good evening <laughs> to you. Uh, we've got uh, Haida, Charlotte, Sophie, Lee, Kelly. Oh, I can't read them all. We've got tons of people. Some familiar so, names I on that list for me, too. So hi to everybody, and thanks for joining in. Yeah, cool. Listen, uh, also, I should say as well to everybody listening, if you want to do basically what I'm attempting to do right now, which is host a Teacher's Talk radio show, then we want you. And you can see in the pinned bit at the top that if you're interested in hosting a show with us, then you can click that and send us a DM 
and we'll get back to you with like lots of information about what you can do and how you can do it. And we've got loads of flexibility to suit your schedule as a teacher. So if you're interested in doing that, then um, then definitely get involved. Um, Charlie Burley, uh, Teachers Health Coach, is the other pinned tweet there. He's got an event this Saturday in London. It's called Rewriting Wellbeing. Uh, make sure you check that out. It's pinned in the space. Have a look at it. Maybe it's something you might want to go to. It would be absolutely fantastic. Great speakers, great chance to network. Doug, we're going to move on now to teach like a champion strategies. Okay. Because um, I want to ask you, I know you were keen. You know what? I'm going to start with the one that you mentioned to me that you'd love to discuss, mm-hmm. which is cold calling strategy yeah. number 22 in teach yes. like a champion. It's, it's become just a huge talking point, hasn't it? Has it, has it surprised, you know, when you wrote it originally, Mm-hmm. This idea, this idea of cold calling, has it surprised you how much discourse and debate and whatever else it has inspired? I mean, everything surprises me about the book because when I wrote it, I, you know, I thought ten people would read it or something, and I'd be able to chart my parents' behavior on uh, by by you know seeing how many uh, how many people have bought it on Amazon. So it, it all surprises me, and, and mostly I'm happy. You know, I think one of the purposes of the book is to give teachers a share, you know, teaching is an incredibly complex endeavor. And one of the things we need to be able to talk about it is a shared vocabulary so that we can, about technical decisions that we make in the course of any lesson. So even if your argument is, I don't think you should have cold called there, I don't think cold call is appropriate in that situation, that you're still using the vocabulary that allows us to have, you know, technical conversation about a highly technical field. So, uh, so I'm really happy to know that, uh, that, uh, inspired some discourse. I mean, just, just in case listeners don't understand it just very succinctly, what is cold calling? It's calling on students, whether or not they raise their hand to, I would say, invite them into the conversation and maybe just confirm all some, some listeners worst suspicions of, of me. Uh, I would like to say that I, frequently cold call my own children. I told you at the outset how much I love them. And I'll just tell you a quick story of, of the cold yeah. call of my, my daughter. My littlest daughter is Willa. Um, and she's five years younger than her older sister and seven years younger than her older brother. And we were at dinner a couple, you know, uh, recently. And my older son is talking about football practice and what Darren did and what Milan did at football practice. And my older daughter is talking about biology class and what happened in class and what one student did and what another very energetic about it and very sort you know like they're older and they have loud forceful voices and they're talking about their school day and i'm looking at my littlest daughter down at the end of the table and looking at her looking at them and i can see that she's wondering you know like i'm i'm five and seven years younger do i have the right to participate in this conversation is my voice important here and it's like uh is my experience in school equally relevant to what they're talking about and so I cold called her and I said, Willa, what about you? What happened, you know, what happened in your science class today? Does that ever happen to you in your science class? I don't remember exactly what it was, right? That's a cold call. I mean, I'm telling her of all the people in the room, I'd like to hear what your, what your perspective is and your experience is right now. Uh, and I think doing that tells her that her voice is relevant and it matters in the classroom. And there are lots and lots of kids out there who are reluctant to speak or afraid to speak or aren't sure whether their their words are relevant. And one of the most powerful things you can do is say, what about you, Tom? Or what do you think about this right now? Can you share, sh- please share your thoughts. Even if, you know, you're a little bit, I mean, uh, one of the most fascinating 
pieces of research. Um, there's a great study by Dallimore, it's 2013, and she studies cold calling in uh, and, uh, and, and high cold calling versus low cold calling classrooms. This is at the university level, but I think it's relevant elsewhere. And what they found is that um, in classrooms where there's more cold calling, one, significantly more students participate because of the cold calling, but two, significantly more students volunteer to speak because they become more confident as they're invited into the conversation. They feel more relevant. They feel more central to the conversation. And perhaps they feel like, oh, there's no sense trying to hide because you're probably going to ask my opinion anyway. And most interestingly, in classes with high cold calling, students' comfort participating in class discussions increased, while in classes with low cold calling, students' comfort participating does not change. In other words, the more you invite students in the, or encourage students or even um, ask and expect students to weigh into the conversation, the more they do so on their own and the more comfortable they are with the idea of participating. And I think that's really important. The idea we, the, you know, the name we give for that term is voice equity, right? It's a way of telling students that they matter. We work a lot with, um, I've worked a, a fair amount with, uh, with some teachers who worked in Sub-Saharan Africa. And I think it's, it's interesting because in the country that they were in in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, there was, there was a, a gender disparity for female students and they were sort of expected for whatever cultural reasons and the community that they were in not to speak in class. And it was really the boys who dominated class. But actually, the girls had quite a bit to say. And if the, the, what they found is that if the teacher took responsibility for breaking the social norm by inviting, the, by requesting or requiring the female students to weigh in and say, "What do you, you know, what do you think, uh, uh, Susan?" that suddenly they um, would begin to raise their hands and felt more confident, felt like they could, and felt like the teacher had taken the responsibility by inviting them into the classroom, and it had profoundly positive influences on voice equity in the classroom can i can i fire at you some of some of the common kind of criticisms if you like of cold sure. and, and see you know so so number one that, that many would say is some students are just naturally quieter and some mm -hmm. learn best by listening so mm -hmm. how would you respond to that criticism well i think one of the one of the benefits of cold call is that it can Build listening behavior. I think listening is profoundly important. If you have, if everyone is talking and no one is listening, you have the American political process, and believe me, you don't want that <laughs> in, in your classroom. <laughs> but I think if your expectation in the classroom is someone could ask me my opinion, particularly they could ask me my opinion about what one of my classmates said at any time, you listen better, and you also know as a student that people are listening better to you, and so you're more likely to participate something to to share something meaningful yourself if you think that your your classmates are likely to take it seriously and attend to it. And so I think that one of the primary reasons to cold call might be that it encourages listening. Um, and you know, I like I think it's important when you cold call to explain to students why you're doing it. We call this a rollout speech, and my rollout speech would be. Um, just so you know, sometimes in this class, I will often ask you to raise your hands. I love it when you raise your hands, but there will also be times when I ask you your opinion or ask you to tell me what you're thinking. And it's important for me as a teacher to know what you're thinking. Sometimes, sometimes I, I specifically want to know what you're thinking for some reason, and we, and we often all have a responsibility to share our thoughts with the group. But it's also my responsibility to understand what you know and how you're thinking about it so I can ensure that you, that you learn the things that you need to learn. And so know that I'll cold call you sometimes. I will cold call everyone. I do it because I care about you. If I cold call you and you don't know the answer or I've caught you, you know, thinking about something else, 
just say, I don't know, I'm a little bit confused, and we'll help you, right? That's that's our job. Do um, you your yeah. best, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this kind of links into another thing that some people sometimes <laughs> say. They use the word harmful, and they say, you know, it can be harmful for some students to be put on the spot. And then, mm -hmm. you know, by that kind of routine of cold calling um, all the time, Mm -hmm. I guess some students, you know, this is, some would say, not necessarily me, I hasten to add or teach to radio, but some would say that students may feel intimidated um, and, and perhaps too intimidated to come to class or, or pay mm -hmm. attention or whatever, and, and then they become non-attenders because they think this is too yeah. stressful. I can't do it. You know, I don't, I, don't, I don't really buy that argument that it has to be stressful. I, th I think, first of all, the relationship between stress and challenge and learning is complex that if you were going to graph it no challenge and no stress uh results in lower learning and that as stress as up to a certain point as challenge and stress increases learning increases and then beyond a certain point you can create an environment that is there's too much stress and uh and people are distracted by the anxiety of it but I don't think, I think for the great majority of, of students, if the teacher is attentive to the environment and explains why she's cold calling and smiles when she cold calls and, and smiles and, and maybe like one of my one of my favorite pieces of advice to a teacher is when you cold call a student, say, Tom, get us started. What do you what do you, you know, what do you think about what might be the answer? Right. If I say get us started, I'm I'm suggesting to you that I don't need a, I don't need or expect a perfect answer from you. I'm expecting you to start the conversation that the rest of the class will develop it from there. And so I've kind of lowered the stakes right there. And if I smile and if I'm walking around and the, you know, I, as a teacher can set the tone where the cold calling feels not only not anxiety uh, causing, but caring and thoughtful. And then I want to know what you're thinking, Tom, what do you think? What are you thinking right now? Is, you know, you have any thoughts on the novel, right? That's, um, that's a cold call. Yeah. And so I think part of it is, you know, sometimes when people say like cold calls, you know, an act of aggression against students, if all you can imagine when you imagine cold calling is an act of aggression, either A, read Teach Like a Champion 3.0, because I spent a lot of time trying to tell you how to make it not feel that, or, or B, the problem is within you if all you can imagine is, is an act of aggression. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as I say, there's some of the, the arguments against. There's plenty of arguments for. Uh, many of which you've just kind of highlighted there. Um, let's move on. That's strategy number 22. Um, there's, there's tons of strategies. I want to I get through some more. So another one that people often uh, talk about, and mm -hmm. it's got some, uh, you know what I'm going to say, don't you, Doug? Which one do you think I'm going to say? It's got some adamant fans and some absolute, um, who are very much against it. You are going to ask me about habits of attention, otherwise known as tracking the speaker. That actually, I was going to ask you about slant, which yeah, uh, well, yeah, which is which is you know, tracking the speaker. Part of that, yes. I mean, I was going to, I was going yeah. to ask you first, what is slant as a strategy, just so, for people yeah. who don't know, because there will be some people yeah. who might not know what slant is. Well, so first of all, slant is an acronym. It stands for sit up, listen, you know, listen and uh, engage in uh, you know active listening behaviors. Um, track the speaker, nod to show that you're nod to show you're listening. That's sort of the original slant acronym. And in the first version of, of Teach Like a Champion, I actually use that acronym slant for the name of the technique. And in the third version of the book, I call it Habits of Attention because I think it's an incredibly powerful and incredibly positive technique. But I also, can, can it be misapplied? Yes, of course it can. And I, 
So I tried to rewrite it to help teachers see its purpose and how to do it well. So I called it Habits of Attention because I think it does two things. First of all, you pay attention to what you look at. And so it's really important that you track the speaker when they're speaking so that you listen better and learn more. Listening is one of the most profoundly important and profoundly underestimated uh, learning tasks in the classroom. And because tracking the speaker and sending pro-social, pro, pro-social nonverbal signals is a signal of belonging and importance to the speaker. If I ask you, Tom, what do you think of the novel? You know, what, what, how do you think Jonas is changing in this chapter? You know, or did this, did this chapter move you? Did it make you think of anything in your own life? And I ask you to share something and you look out at the classroom and what you see are people looking away from you, checking their phones, looking out the window, slouched in their chairs. And, or even if they're just staring ahead and their body language says, I don't give a damn what you're saying right now. Who in their right mind shares a true and honest thought in that setting? But if my classmates are looking at me and they're attentive and they're showing me with their nonverbal behavior that what I'm about to say matters to them and that they care, I'm much more likely to share a profound and meaningful thought that creates a better learning environment for everyone in that classroom. And so those nonverbal, like, is it a little, is it, is it potentially awkward to say to students, look, when one of your classmates is talking, you should look at them and you should do your best to look interested, even on days when you're a little bit tired, because the net trade is you will give up a little bit of, you know, a little bit of personal freedom. But if you do that, you will create a classroom environment where you will feel constantly affirmed when you share your intellectual side and you will feel the support of your classmates and the intellectual discourse will be multiplied and you will be in a you will be in a classroom that gets you closer to achieving your dreams and your aspirations. Like which, which one of those is more, is more important? Uh, so I, I really think it's important that um, the idea of like, it doesn't mean that students always have to track the speaker, right? You can be like, no need to track the speaker now, or you can be tracking the speaker or taking notes. And there are lots of ways to turn off the system, but having the expectation that when we're talking, we show one another that our words matter. That's central to the, the learning experience. And so I think part of SLAM originally was an acronym. I think it's useful to have an acronym to describe those things. Yeah. I mean, but I, I would just say like in, in the 3.0 version of Teach Like a Champion, I, I try to describe sort of like better alternative or other alternatives to having an acronym. And I tried yeah. to make the acronym less central to the technique because I think some people like, is there the potential to sort of fall back on it and feel like the acronym is the purpose, you know? And, yeah. Yes. But you also want short, a shorthand system to be able to refer to students and remind students about this habit that we have of mutual respect and appreciation when we're talking about ideas in the classroom. I also have to say, if anybody wants to comment, there's a little button um, on the bottom right hand side, like a speech bubble button. You can hit that and post a comment. and We'll, we'll read it out um, to Doug while he's here. Um, Doug's going to be leaving us at about nine-ish. Um, and after that point, I'm going to invite anybody who wants to, to call in with any comments. I mean, Doug, you're welcome to stick around. I know you've got to go at, at, at nine-ish, so that's absolutely fine. If you, if you want or can stick around, great. I'm going to be inviting anyone else who wants to comment or call in to call in give your either questions or views um, um, maybe Doug you if you do have to go you could listen back maybe to the last 30 minutes or whatever and 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 you know at some point and and say what you think but um that's the plan anyway at nine ish we're gonna 
invite anyone who maybe people who've used some of these strategies to to we've already discussed cold calling we're now discussing this idea of slant now Doug I want to I want to fire at you just a couple of things there's two main things criticisms that Mm -hmm. I've seen of slant the two ones that always seem to um come I come across one is this idea of like I guess the 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 kind of idea of power and control Mm -hmm. the, the idea of like everyone's in rows everyone's doing the same thing there's no kind of autonomy there's no like individuality there everyone has to do the same thing or they're punished that kind of thing and the second criticism i've seen is from those who say that strategies like slant or uh, cold calling and 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 maybe some other um t-soccer championship strategies they would say um aren't viable for uh neurodivergent students um they're the two main criticisms i've seen how how would you kind of respond to those two what would you say to those two let me take the second one first i think it depends on the neurodivergent student right some neurodivergent students benefit quite well from it and some don't and i would say that i trust teachers to make decisions if you have 30 students in your classroom and one of them is neurodivergent and uh they have uh, Asperger's syndrome and uh, tracking the speaker is just really distracting and awkward for them. You just change, you just adapt it. You, you have a system in place for the great majority of students that's overwhelmingly benefit, beneficial to the great majority of students. And then as a professional, you make a decision about here's a case where it doesn't really apply as much and I'm going to figure out a solution for this student. That seems, I mean, like, uh, it's, a, it's a default system that is overwhelmingly beneficial to the great majority of students, right? So let's make out, let, let's put it into place and then let's turn it off when it doesn't apply, right? Just because, because you can doesn't mean you must. It doesn't mean you have to say you always have to be doing it. It doesn't mean you have to always be sitting in rows. I know lots of classrooms where I can show you beautiful videos of kids not sitting in rows where everyone still shows everyone else mutual respect in the classroom when they're speaking. And if there are students who are exceptions, you make exceptions for them. Do you think do you think it is a problem when schools implement any teach like a champion strategy um, without any kind of like flexibility? Like yes. all teachers in the school must do this type thing in every lesson because a lot of schools do that. I mean, do you think that's a problem or do you think like that's look, they're okay? pe- the, I, I think that these are powerful techniques and can they be misapplied and misused? Of course. And so, do I always have to be watching out for situations in which? people either through misintentions or even worse to the best of intentions, apply them in a counterproductive way. Yes. Should I be careful about, look, so so I I think there's a power to school-wide systems and expectations, right? If we're gonna say, we're gonna track the speaker in this classroom, it is a lot easier as a teacher to be successful, especially if if a brand new teacher, I'm struggling a little bit, I'm not quite as great a manager of the classroom. If the expectation is in every room and in every, classroom in this school, the expectation is we look at each other when we're talking whenever we can or whenever we're asked to because it because it makes us all, it creates a learning environment that is beneficial to all of us and we all make this small sacrifice and in return we get this beautiful thing back which is a vibrant classroom where intellectual ideas flourish in a way that they don't. Is it reasonable to, to have a school-wide rule like that? Yes. 
do I want to say always and absolutely? Probably not. I probably, you know, do I want to leave some I think, I think what, teachers? But, absolutely. Do I want to like be cautious to the fact that um, teachers could misapply them? Of course. But I still think that, uh, you know, I think those are manageable problems for an, an attentive administration to be able to address through training and feedback and observation for the most part. I, have I seen classrooms where it's gone badly, where people have said, oh, we're doing Teach Like a Champion, and I walk into the classroom and it makes my heart sink? Yes, of yeah. course. Uh, I, don't, I don't think there's any way that there couldn't be a small number of classrooms like that. But I've, I've found very few of those classrooms where with a little bit of feedback to the teacher, and we say, you know, like, okay, the purpose of this is to have students track each other and the purpose is like smile when you give this direction, right? And uh, like that it isn't actually fairly, uh, isn't fixable fairly quickly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think one of the phrases that, that, that would be used certainly in the UK around that is non-negotiables. So like, mm-hmm. you know, you have to do this, have to do that. But I, I don't think that's necessarily any sort of criticism of the strategy, whatever the strategy is. I think that's more a choice of, how a school does things, isn't it? Rather than a criticism of the strategy itself. I think that's more, okay, demanding that everyone does the strategy at certain points or whatever. And, and, and I agree with you, it's more maybe an overall ethos. Um, let's move on. I love this one. And I wanted to ask you about it because it really, it, it's always kind of sparked my interest. I use the word spark because it actually contains, it's kind of a bit like that. But the strategy called Vegas right? Mm-hmm. You yeah. call it Vegas. It's like this idea of the sparkle yeah. that, that teaches all lessons or whatever. I wondered whether you could tell me a bit more about that because I'm always intrigued by it. I want to know because in some ways that doesn't necessarily fit in with a lot of the other strategies, if that makes sense. The, the other strategies are quite about like structure or order or whatever. And Vegas doesn't necessarily fit in. Yeah. You know, I think that's one of those just like chronic misperceptions about classroom environments that somehow like if they're less structured, they'll be more prone to or amenable to moments of joy and playfulness and fun and games and singing. And I actually think that it's the opposite that, you know, how many classrooms do you know where the teacher tries to do something fun or a little bit silly and it spirals out of either half the kids do it and and half the kids don't and they mock the kids who do it and therefore the kids who do it feel foolish or kids do it but there isn't there aren't really expectations for how we do things in the classroom and so it spirals off the rails and the teacher says all right everyone you know if that's the way you're going to respond when we play Jeopardy or when we sing a song we won't do it anymore like that's not very joyful to me (laughs) and actually I think that like classroom where you can turn it on and turn it off you can say right we're let's uh let's sing happy birthday to tom everyone and uh and everyone you know um uh you know send him love and appreciation and nonverbal gesture like if everyone knows that they can do knows that they knows how to do that without making the gesture crass or vulgar without overdoing it and that i know that i can do that in 10 or 15 seconds and then turn it off and we can get on with the learning and it's not going to like explode into um, disorder, then I can do that constantly, frequently, all the time. I can bring joy into my classroom and that actually structure is a, is a, is a tool to allow me to do more of those things. I think that's one of the, the hidden genius of so many teachers. I, you know, I think there's this myth that somehow, like, if my classroom is unstructured, it will be 
the student's culture that will emerge and it will make most students happy. But, you know, I think that an unstructured classroom is happy for a few kids who are dominant and actually quite unhappy for a lot of kids. You know, one, one, one student said to me at, a, at a, one of the first schools that I ran, he said, this is a student who was, had, he, had a, he had mixed feelings about the structure in the school. He, it was a, and he was a very, very bright young man, but he had spent a lot of time in, in chaotic and disorderly schools before he'd come to us. And he was smart enough to engineer those environments and to want to be sort of, you know, socially uh, highly regarded. And so he said, you know, my old school, um, we had no rules, but we never did anything. And in this school, we have there's, there are rules for the way we do things, but we do we're able to do so many, you know, so many like interesting, enjoyable things. And we go on field trips and we and we play games in class and we and it's like it's taken me a while to see that, but now I see it really clearly, which is like, when, when we have these structures in place, we can actually do things together that are worth doing. And I think that that's, that's a little bit of a hidden secret of a great classroom. Yeah. Wow. Love that. Um, I, I, I'm interested just, just to expand a bit more, because I know one of the strategies in, in, in TLAC is also um, this, this idea of the J factor. So like the joy factor in, in, yeah. in, in the class and stuff. And, what I was going to ask you is like what you've obviously watched a hell of a lot of teachers. You've spoken to a lot of teachers. The cert, like you, you are a great believer that teachers can improve. Teaching can be taught. Teaching mm -hmm. isn't this kind of like that, that having that personality for it, if you like, or whatever. But there are many who, who would disagree with that. There were many who would say, look, you, you know, the very best teachers are kind of like, they're just innate about it. They don't think about it. They just are that. Like, what is it for you that is because we mentioned this vague, this idea of Vegas, this this extra sparkle, this this joy factor in the classroom. These are quite like ambiguous things, aren't they? So yeah. how, like, how do you? What do you see in that? How do you see that? What what are these teachers about? Who are they? Yeah, I think. I think that joy and happiness are really misunderstood things. First of all, like I think there are a lot of different, you know, I've actually read, have been reading a lot of the research on happiness and it consists of both pleasure, which is what we tend to equate with happiness, but also meaning and belonging and that, you know, people take great pleasure in a variety of experiences. And so I, I just say that because I've seen a lot of like really joyful classrooms that are full of laughter and humor and singing and little games. And I think that's beautiful. And I've actually seen a lot of really joyful classrooms that are much more quiet and the teacher's a little bit more introverted, but the, you know, kids are quite happy. And uh, there's, you know, there are also quieter approaches to, to joy and happiness. And so I think one of the things to, one of the things that's important to me about the book is that it, it is a set of tools and not a system, right? It's a set of tools for craftspeople to use to find the best version of themselves, the best version of themselves that is most beneficial to the students in your classroom. And, I, you know, I sort of end the book, the 3.0 version of the book with the joy factor, because I think it's so important and also so, so tricky. And I'd say two things are really helpful. And, you know, for some people, it's really intuitive to how to pull this off. Yeah. And for some people, it's not. I think naming things is really helpful. So like one of my favorite, just little tiny phrases from the, the joy factor technique is small recurring inside jokes, right? This is what a teacher, um, this is his advice on humor. Like, and I think 
naming it like that, that's really helpful because that's a strategy, right? It doesn't have to be a giant joke. I don't have to like always try and tell like a long-winded story about my dog. It can be like little tiny inside jokes that they're recurring. And inside jokes meaning like a joke like that, an inside joke confers belonging on everyone who gets it because you get it and because it's ours. And it's funny in part because it's funny, but it's funny in part because it's ours. And even like, you know, it's like dad humor, like, um, its familiarity makes it sort of a, a belonging signal. And so I think just conceptualizing things and being able to name something, maybe that's one of the principles in the book, which is being able to name the things that people for whom it is intuitive makes it more accessible for whom it is not. Yes. And then I think one of the other, the, the power of video, right? Like sometimes we can see and observe things that we can't necessarily name and describe, but seeing people do it, we're like, oh, okay, I, I could do a version of that. I think it's really like... Humans over-imitate. I don't know if you've ever read any, any of the research on this, but like, there's a really fascinating study where, um, I apologize for going on a bit of a deep dive, but no, I no, it's, it's really fascinating. So here, here's a, a, a study that, that a cognitive scientists did with human children of about six years old and chimpanzees. And they presented them with a clear plastic box, you know, of about like, let's call it a foot uh, in uh, a foot in dimension on a clear a cube of a foot in dimension and inside it is a little sliding tray with a gummy bear and so they model for the chimpanzees and the human and the small and the, and the human children how to get the treat out of the box and the first thing there's a there's a a bar at the top that you have to pull out of a slot and then the uh, experimenter taps this bar on the side of the box and reinserts it into the slot and this is an extraneous action that has nothing to do with actually getting the treat, but they model this over and over again. And then there's a second step that they model where they take the tray that, that uh, is in the box and they twist it to the left and they pull the tray out and that's how you get the gummy bear. Yeah. And so then they, they modeled this repeatedly for human children and for chimpanzees. And then they watched to see what they did. And instantly the chimpanzees gamed the system and they stopped doing the, they stopped copying the extraneous action and they just went right to the drawer and pulled out the drawer and got the gummy bear. Yeah. But the, the human children persisted in copying the extraneous actions repeatedly and tapping the, you know, the, the bar on the, side of the, on the side of the cube and then taking the gummy bear out. And so the experimenters were fascinated. They were like, what? does this suggest that, that chimpanzees are smarter than human children? They gain the system much, much faster. And what they concluded is that actually humans are the only animals on earth that have what you would call cumulative culture, which is we have accrued complex procedures for achieving tasks that are critical to our evolutionary survival, right? Making the process of making beer or bread, which are the two of the earliest things that we ate, are more complex than you could, and you could communicate verbally to someone to understand all the steps and remember them. And working memory would quickly be overloaded. And so you would be at risk of those evolutionarily imperative things being lost unless when you modeled something humans compulsively copied the steps and models uh they this is what they call over imitated as a matter of habit and being an over imitator was so evolutionarily beneficial that basically now we've evolved to basically all of us being over imitators and so we often do what we see without even understanding, we'll begin to copy it. We find this all the times in our, in our workshops. If we do, if we model for teachers, right? We're gonna practice cold calling. Here's a model of practice. And we insert into the model, the model is smiling when she cold calls. 
suddenly we'll look around the room and people will be copying the smile and the cold call or copying a phrase that she uses. And so I think that's one of the powers of, of video. The videos in, in, in Teach Like a Champion, the videos that you make of teachers in your school that you share is that people will copy and be able to conceptualize how they can do things that they might not be able to describe or explain just by seeing it sometimes. Got you. Got you. So interesting. Really, really, it really makes you think. Um, I'd love to. I'd love to literally carry on all day with you about all the other um, TLAC strategies, but there's literally forty nine of them. So I don't. I'm, I'm plus the rest. So I don't think we can. Sixty three. Sixty three in the three point version of the book. There so. you go. Sixty three okay. in that one. So I. I think yeah. I think we'll, we we've we've dived into a few of the the biggies, if you like. Um, I've got a few other questions I want to ask you, Doug. More wider okay. questions. Okay. Um, and I have to credit Tom HB, who's actually here now with with some of these. He these are some that he's asked and some that I'm asking as well. So, um, have you given any advice to teachers that you've gone on to regret? Yes. Can you tell us about it? Uh, I mean, <laughs> like a therapy yeah. session, isn't it, Doug? But yeah, <laughs> right. Well, one of, one of the biggest that I've, I've written about quite a lot is when I was early on in understanding teaching i think that i actually i think that i underestimated and didn't understand the role of background knowledge in reading comprehension and so i argued for a very skills driven approach to reading and i think that this is uh i was i was dead wrong <laughs> we built our schools at this point around you know read up we would we would focus on the type of question we were asking a student about a text, right? It'll be an author's purpose question or a main idea question or an inference question. And the more that I've read the cognitive science, it's overwhelmingly clear now that what appear to be skills, issues with skills or issues with background knowledge of which vocabulary is the most important form of background knowledge. And that, um, I think, you know, I think it's a huge challenge now as we come back from pandemic, you know, when kids have been in an educationally suboptimal environment for a year and a half, and they have had mega doses of screen time that drives out reading and fractures attention, right? Effective reading is so profoundly important right now. And so, you know, I just, I just, there were many years that I spent taking this very skills based approach to reading that I now, it's really clear to me that it is. What does that mean though, in practice, what were you telling yeah. teachers to do sort of thing? Right. So we would read a passage and we would, we would ask, uh, kids would read it. At our worst, it would either you'd read a passage and kids would ask questions, you know, that were like, let's practice, let's talk about main idea, let's talk about how you figure out the main idea, let's talk about how you make an inference. Yeah. Uh, and so the passage would become a vehicle for these types of questions, which I think is like the death of the book. Um, and I think that there would be not enough reading going on and way too much sort of not very valuable conceptual talking about um, what we perceive to be a skill, right? Pe people don't struggle to, to make an inference because they don't understand that an inference is combining what the text tells you with your own background knowledge. The problem is that they don't have the right background knowledge, right? They don't have, uh, or they didn't catch the, they didn't, they didn't understand the text well enough to make an, an inference. And so, and I just, I've been in a lot of classrooms in the last month and I just see so much English and reading instruction that is really wasted time spent asking these skill-based questions uh in you know much more productive would be lots of time on fluency lots of time on vocabulary lots of time building up background knowledge so that students understand better 
what they're reading, and then they will make better inferences about it. Um, thank you. On, on, on another one we, that, that Tom suggested we ask, and, and I find this really interesting. Recently, David Didow, who you might know in, in the yeah, UK, kind of a blogger, he yeah, said, he said, quote, if you don't routinely use mini whiteboards in mm -hmm. your teaching, then your teaching is less effective than mm -hmm. it would otherwise be. Mm -hmm. Are you are you also an evangelist for mini whiteboards? Uh, I, I think they're, they can be highly beneficial. I, I love to see teachers using them. I don't know that I would make that statement quite as strongly as David does. I can think of some classes where it's more beneficial than others. I think, you know, yes, I think they can. They are often immensely useful. The interesting question is when and why. I think just because something is useful doesn't mean it's always useful in every setting. So I would probably advocate for them in a more... Um, in a slightly more, um, I see them as beneficial, uh, often very beneficial. I know we can talk about some of the benefits of them, but uh, you know, uh, there are times when other things are more beneficial or when they're most beneficial in balance with other things. So I, I would probably be a little bit more, uh, maybe take a slightly more nuanced approach to it. Interesting. Um, what what do you think is the in inverted commas thing in education that we'll all be saying was a fad in five years time? Uh, that is great. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, uh, you know, I I hope that one of them will be um, our non our reflexive use of technology of seeing technology and technology in the classroom is beneficial uh in and of its own sake for its own sake um you know one of the things that i think research is making clear about screens and screen time is that they fracture attention and when you're in a screen-based environment it, it connects you to habituated behaviors of less of degraded attentional states and attention is key to every piece of learning and so, uh, you know, I think that um, hopefully in five years, we will have recognized that putting screens in classrooms is not, a, is not inherently good. And in fact, it's often a net negative. So I'd say number one is I think that cell phones um, should, not be in, <laughs> should not be in classrooms, period, end of story. Should probably not be on schools during the school day. Um, though I think they're like, there are reasonable interpretations of what the limit should be. But I think that there's a little bit of like glamorization of and uh, valorization of technology in the classroom that we will come to look back on and be like, wow, we really, we really got that wrong. Yeah. Interesting. Um, this is the, these aren't my words, but some, somebody else said this. Do, do you think that differentiation is a quote poison? that needs to be, quote, eradicated? No. The idea of differentiation. <laughs> no, I do not think that's, I do not, I don't think it's a poison. I think it can sometimes be a, a distract. I mean, I think differentiation can mean a lot of different things. Um, and I think it's often romanticized and valorized with, you know, um, without justification that oftentimes, sometimes we want differentiation and sometimes actually what we want is, everyone to learn the same things and reliably to know those same things and know that other people know them so that we can talk about them. 
I would definitely not say that it's a poison. And I would say that it um, it's probably a mixed bag that probably gets a little bit maybe more focus than it probably, I think other things are more important often, but there are certainly times when it's appropriate. Yeah, yeah. Um, apart from your own books, um, what are the three books that oh. you would recommend new teachers to the profession oh. could read? I mean, there's so many great books out there that um, I wish that I'd had a little bit more time to prepare this because I know as soon as we hang up, I'm going to regret all the brilliant books. That I've <laughs> well, but, don't worry. You've yeah. prefaced it now, so we're okay. Okay. So the one that's like just actually sitting right next to me here is Christopher Such's The Art and Science of Teaching Primary Reading. And I just think that that's... Wow. It's written for primary school teachers, but I think it's necessary for everyone because I think everyone should really be thinking about themselves as a reading teacher. What do, you, what do you think about Chris's book is particularly good? What's the thing that, because you must, you must read a hell of a lot of stuff. So what is it about that one that stood out to you? I mean, absolute clarity, absolute clarity about what's important, what, what, what creates understanding and reading, what you should spend your time doing and what you should not spend your time doing based on the science, but written in plain English through a practitioner standpoint. Um, from that perspective, it is gold. I might say number two right now would be Peps McRae's Motivated Teaching. Again, like a bit like Christopher Such's book, uh, it's relatively short. It's immensely accessible. It's based on the cognitive science. It's filtered through plain, uh, you know, just like practical wisdom. And it's so powerful about building culture uh, and positive norms in the classroom. Uh, you know, you, could, you can sit down and read that book in two hours and it will change your life. Um, and now it's the anxious part because I only have one more and I'm really stressed that I'm going to, uh, I know that I'm going to leave out about ten, 10 of my absolute favorite books, but, um, yeah. but, but Harry Fletcher Wood's book, Responsive Teaching, I think is a really sensible overview of how a lot of things work, especially background knowledge uh, in the classroom. And so I think it's a really good starting point for a new teacher also. Now, I'm not sure on this. Someone can correct me later, but certainly I think two out of the three are maybe all three. I'm not sure where Pips McCree's based, actually, but I think perhaps all three are British slash UK based. Um, is that a coincidence? I mean, is that a coincidence? Do you think? I mean, probably you... not. I would say you know you asked me at the beginning UK versus uh, USA, and I would say from an educational perspective, I'm I'm more optimistic about your country than my own. Um, Why is that? Much more. Uh, the discourse about the cognitive science is much more central to, to the, you know, the conversation among teachers. Teachers have read a lot more cognitive science. They understand the value of it. Um, they're connected to it. I think there's a higher level of professionalism and professional reading among teachers in, in the UK. Uh, and, uh, and maybe just a slightly more like, uh, I love presenting in the UK and working with UK audiences because they're just like, people re really care about the intellectual foundations of their field. And, uh, and I feel like particularly conversations around the importance of background knowledge and the importance of shared knowledge and the importance of the idea that there's cultural capital that you need to know to go out into the world to connect to opportunity. Uh, I, I feel like there's a receptiveness to the, that conversation, the conversation about cognitive science and the conversation about professionalism and preparation that's maybe the UK is slightly ahead of the US in those, in those areas. So, um, 
That's really interesting. Listen, Doug, I know you, you've given us over an hour of your time. So I just want to say for, from everyone at Teachers Talk Radio, thanks ever so much. I've really enjoyed the chat. I've learned a huge amount um, from talking to you. I hope everyone listening has too. Um, what we're going to do now, you can stick around if you want, Doug, by all means. We're going to invite other people in uh, to maybe share their thoughts or their feelings or opinions. We've talked about slant. We've talked about cold calling. We've talked about joy factor. We've talked about Vegas. Uh, we've talked about lots of TLAC strategies. Uh, we've got Tom joining us first. So, Tom, do you have anything you'd like to say to Doug or any questions or any thoughts? No, well, thank, thank you, Doug, for giving up your time. I'm afraid all of my questions were asked by Tom Rogers, so I've got nothing left. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Well, listen, uh, thanks, for having, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. And I will go back and listen to uh, people's questions and the discussion about it. So I'm sorry that I do have to dash That's to very you. Kind, but, That's uh, very kind, Doug. That's very kind. Thanks. Thanks, Doug. Cheers. My pleasure. And, th and just uh, thank, thanks to you for this opportunity. And thanks to all the teachers out there. It's, it's a really challenging time to be a teacher, yeah. but it's also a really challenging time to be a student. And so it's so important that there are people like all of you who are so intentional about what they do in the classroom and trying to create the best environment, learning environments for young people. So thank you to all your listeners. Legend, Doug. Thank you. See you later. Cheers. Oh, wow, wow, wow. That was Doug Lamov. Uh, so much there to take away in that hour and 10 minutes or so. Um, Tom, do you have any thoughts or reflections just to start with? We're going to invite anyone who wants to call in with any thoughts on anything you've just heard. It could be about cold calling. It could be about slant. It could be about any of the other questions we asked Doug. Do you agree with his top three book selections, Tom? Oh, I think Chris Such is um, a great choice for number one. Really agree on that. I think um, William, why don't students like school is probably one which I'd put in my top three. Um, yeah. It's also worth remembering that um, Chris Such's show with Nathan Ginn is still yes. available to listen back at ttradio.org forward slash listen back. Fantastic, um, fantastic show about teaching primary reading. Also, if you think you can do a better job than Tom Rogers at hosting, um, we are recruiting for new Teachers Talk Radio hosts. Check out the first pinned tweet on the space tonight. Um, if you become a Teachers Talk Radio host, you get a platform to share your views and thoughts on all things education. You get support and guidance from our host community. You get comprehensive technical support. So just DM the TTR account if you are interested. Also, this is probably a good time to announce that coming up next month, we have uh, at least a few shows from Drumroll... Carl Poupe, everyone, who's in the studio. I can hear applause from here to New York. I can't really, but Carl will be doing some Teachers Talk radio shows. We can't wait for that. Um, Action Hero Teach, he's in the studio at the minute. We are blooming well buzzing about that and looking forward to it. You can join the TTR host community. All you got to do is send us a DM. We'll send you an info pack. We've got so much flexibility on on hosting in terms of when you could host and how you could host and all the rest of it. So get in touch. Um, listen, my reflections on that. Wow. I mean, there's so many. I think one of the things that stuck out to me in that whole discussion was the bit about cold calling. Um, I, I did fire at Doug some of the kind of common criticisms of it. Um, and I think he answered them pretty well, to be honest with you. I, you know, he definitely answered with the arguments that you that that you would expect him to answer. I liked what he said about it being inclusive and it being, you know, um, everyone is involved. But I'd be interested to hear from anyone else here what, what they think. I mean, Tom, what do you think about cold calling? Do you have an opinion on it? 
So I would say I use cold calling in every lesson, yeah. every single day. It's just a habit. And I think ultimately, once you've done it enough times, it's one of those things that it becomes a habit. And you just, you know, you the key about cold calling is always about incorporating wait time and yeah. ensuring that you give all students the opportunity to think. You can also look at increasing wait time by, you know, incorporating think out share. Um, just give all students an opportunity to rehearse their answer with a supportive partner before giving the, their answers or their contributions or the suggestions for the whole class. So I think cold call works really, really well when it's uh, paired with effective wait time. And it's just a way of really maximising ratio. So it's a really good thing that you can incorporate with mini whiteboards as well um, in terms of getting all kids to put their answers on their mini whiteboards and then picking on one or two and bouncing it around and getting students to expand on that using cold call so cold call i think is really really effective when it's paired with other strategies some of which are from teach life champion others not so but i think it's really really good when it's paired with other strategies i thought it was interesting what doug said about whiteboards because the, there was that massive kickoff on on social media about you know use of mini whiteboards and whatever and of course tom you posed that question didn't you including the quote from from David Didow. It was interesting to hear, Doug, he doesn't seem to be, uh, certainly he's not a mini whiteboard evangelist, is he? Mm. No, I, I, I have a theory, and it's that mini whiteboards are much more of a UK thing than they are a US thing. And I'd love somebody to come and test me on this. But as far as I'm aware, mini whiteboards have been used for years and years and years, particularly in UK primary schools. I think all of this mini whiteboard debate of them sort of coming back in this resurgence. A lot of primary teachers have been looking and being like, well, where have you been? We've been using these mini whiteboards all the time. But I don't think they're as big a thing in the US. I've got no real evidence to suggest that, but to support that. But that's just my theory that they're bigger in the UK than they are in the US. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think they're a fantastic, personally, I think mini whiteboards are a, are a fantastic tool, that they're, they're brilliant, you know. I've used them many, many times. But I agreed with what Doug said in the sense of you don't have to use them. I mean, like, you know, like it's not the end of the world if you don't use mini whiteboards in a lesson. They're a fantastic tool. But, I, you know, I, I agreed with what Doug said in, in that quote um, from David Didow saying, you know, if you don't use them, then, you know, they're kind of essential in every lesson sort of thing. You know, I don't necessarily buy buy into that. I think there has to be some some flexibility there. I do think there's endless strategies with, with mini whiteboards. I think they involve all students. I think that's a massive plus. I think they are very quick in terms of assessment for learning. I think students tend to like using them, actually. I think they have a lot of student fans, which is important. I think they, they like them. They appreciate them. I think everyone feels involved. I think the downside of the pens, the stupid blooming pens that run out in 30 seconds if you buy the cheap ones students you know you end up at the end of the lesson clearing about 10 that have had like the nibs torn off or whatever you know that side of it is blooming like oh my god annoying and that's where i suppose you get into that realm of well i don't know like is it worth getting all the mini whiteboards out getting all the dusters out getting all the pens out because that you know whatever unless you have the luxury of course of having your own classroom if you have your own classroom you can leave them out all day long on the desks you know then you don't need to do anything you just leave them all out but the problem with leaving them all out all day you end up with that massive like loads go missing loads get damaged loads go, whatever 
you know, um, I'm sure there'd be a teacher who's like, might never get damaged because my students are so well trained. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. But well, here's what I'd say to that because Nathan and I discussed this at length um, on Staff Room 101 a few weeks ago. Oh, I'm so glad um, I missed that. Yes. Um, <laughs> what, what, ha- what we do with mini whiteboards in our school is that mini whiteboards, and they are proper mini whiteboards, are attached to student planners. So they're like a page in a student planner. So there's no issue about getting them out and then having to collect them back in. So long as kids have their planners on their desks, which they have to, it's part of school equipment and a routine that they have to have their planners out all the time in lessons, um, then they just have a mini whiteboard there. And then at the start of the year, all of the kids are given their whiteboard pen. And so that's part of our equipment and we have equipment checks. So we make sure that we've got a whiteboard pen as part of that. Um, and if they, if their whiteboard pen runs out or heaven forbid they lose it, then they can go to our pastoral hub where we've got boxes and boxes of mini whiteboard pens where they can sort of get a new one. Yeah. Um, so I think routines around mini whiteboards are really essential. And I think at a sort of a centralised school level, because they're such a useful piece of kit, it needs to be made as convenient as possible for teachers to actually use them. If I had to get mini whiteboards out all of the time and hand them out and collect them back in and do the same with mini whiteboard pens, then I probably wouldn't use them as much as I do right now. If anyone wants to join in, by the way, there's a little button on the bottom left that says request to speak. You can hit that. And then either myself or Lucy, who is doing a wonderful job adminning this show, will let you in as a speaker. So if you have any opinions on anything that we're discussing right now, then just hit that button and and call in. I wanted to talk a little bit about slant because it gets, I mean, I talked to uh, Barry Smith about this, huge fan of slant. Catherine Burble Singh is, is, is a fan of slant. I don't know whether she's quite as, she, she certainly wasn't, she surprised me in the sense she wasn't quite so, uh, evangelical about it as some others, but certainly they use it in in her school. There's many people who who speak very highly of it, but equally, if you mention slant in 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 some cases, it gets a really strong reaction to say it's discriminatory um, by saying that by uh, asking students to track a speaker, by asking them to perform certain routines or uh human behaviors or, or body language of eye contact for example by asking or demanding that they do that is not inclusive and it's not um uh, i guess respectful to the autonomy and the individuality of each student that's what some people would say as a criticism of slant um I know Brent's called in, so we'll ask Brent if he's got something to say on slant. Yeah, I've done this for years. I've done it from the very start of my teaching practice because it just felt natural. As the kids come in, greet at the door, greet the children, stand behind their desk, get their planners out. I'm a big fan of routines and micro routines and creating a classroom climate straight away that means business. And then once I've done that, I relax but there's always routine. No matter what age the children come in, I've just basically schooled them. The, the year sevens is always difficult because they, they sort of get a bit sort of, um, they see what I'm doing and they don't like it. But after a while, they just get so used to it. I just have to turn around and look at the child and they sit properly. And I do think that is important because you are at the classroom teacher. You have to have an element of a locus of control. And I then relax that control once I've established those routines. 
And the thing about the, the students with neurodivergence, and I myself am neurodivergent. It's one of the reasons why I've devised this, because I go off on tangents. I've, I've got ADHD as a kid, and I'm, and I'm an adult ADHD, so I'm one of those teachers that can go off on tangents, on tangents, on tangents. So I know unless I've got structure and organisation and got some discipline, and, and that helps me, actually, as a teacher, keep myself from going off into the realms of... So if that works on me as an adult and as a teacher... It always works as well with a lot of my, my children with, with needs. And in fact, it gets to the point where sometimes the children with needs, I'll get children with needs and people will say to me, why, why does that child behave for you in class? And I'm like, because I'm consistent, 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 because they know what they're going to get with me. They feel safe. They feel as if they, they already, once they've got used to the routines. And yes, I know people out there are sort of like, well, you know, it's, it's, it's curtailing a little bit of their freedom. Well, actually, children want to be in that situation they like that that makes them feel uh, in many ways i suppose it gets their calmness it creates a calm atmosphere what i've noticed with some of the children who are divergent if there's too much distraction too much noise they get triggered but when they come into a classroom where they feel routines and safety and consistency uh, that really really helps and i i've done very well with with children who are neurodivergent, possibly because they look at me sometimes and probably think I'm, you know, I've got similar issues. And I actually do. I'm not ashamed to admit it. I do have similar issues sometimes. And, and one of the things during COVID I find very stressful was the break in routines. And I find it stressful for me. So, of course, some children find it very, very stressful. So I, I couldn't wait to get back to the, the way things are now, back to the old routines. And some of the children have struggled. But straight away, once the routines are established, I think slant is, is, is variations of slant. Whatever works for a person. But as long as you have routines where you establish at the very start of the lesson, the, the culture and how you're going to teach the children. And once they've, they've understood how your classroom is going to operate, I think it's, it's as long as you're comfortable with that, I think that's fine. I'll even get to a stage where if a child swings in my chair, I make them stand. Because if they can't sit in a chair properly, then tough. And it gets to the stage after I've done that two or three times, the child will stand up. And I'll say, you stand up for two minutes if you can't sit in the chair properly. After a couple of times of that, they don't stop rocking in the chairs any longer. I know it's Pavlovian, it is very Pavlovian, but actually, it's we're the teacher. We're, we're, we have to instruct these children, and we have to say very explicitly, clearly, how we want them to behave. If you, if you allow children to organically, in some ways, you know, dictate their own behaviour, <laughs> you're on the hiding and off. And so I'm a massive fan of it, and I'm a very liberal, easygoing person. But in the classroom, I run a very tight classroom to begin with. But as the children get older, the interesting thing is, as the children get older, they always say, oh, sir, you know, when you were year seven and year eight, we, we, you thought you were very strict. Now we realise you're, ah, now you understand. But at the same time, I've established that routine of it. I've established that rapport. But that's why you have to work hard with that. So I'm a massive fan of, of that type of teaching. Yeah, interesting. But, of course, there would be those who would say to, to what you just said, that doesn't take into account the differences in in students within the classroom so would you approach one child in the same way you'd approach the next if i understood the ch i'll take the time to get to know the child and obviously reading you know reading yeah. between the lines i'll use a bit of body language and instinct you know when a child's not making eye contact there might be a reason yeah. so you use your instincts and you know where to push and where, where yeah. to back off and you know sometimes where the line can be slightly bent and, and where you, you could sort of just not make an exception but you, you figure it out, don't you? Once you get to know your children, yeah. you know the pressure points, don't you? So, you know, I won't directly ask. It's like some children I won't do cold calling on straight away because you know that they're just going to go introvert. So you coax them out, don't you? And then eventually, with the positive reinforcement, they get a question right. 
you know, you, you make a big, and there's all the children, you praise publicly, there's all the children, you wait behind at the end of the lesson and you say, that was very, very good. You just figure them out, don't you? Because every child is different and unique and you, you, there's a formula to working children out, isn't there? And sometimes it is trial and error and sometimes you get it wrong. And if you get it wrong, you, you speak to the child afterwards and say, I'm sorry, I, I asked you the question like that. I won't do that again. And, and usually the children are quite forgiving if you know you've admitted you've made a mistake and you've called them out. Yeah, just just to quickly address, I know Natalie, I think Natalie is listening now. So I'm like, yes, she is. Natalie, just so you know, and everyone else in the space, this this show is recorded. So you can listen back to the whole thing whenever you want by clicking on the same link. But we're also going to publish it as a podcast uh, probably in the next 48 hours. So if you follow Teachers Talk Radio on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, then you'll see that episode appear in the next couple of days so you can listen back to it at your own leisure. If you are uh, good enough that you would like to do that, then you absolutely can. Um, yeah, Brent, I mean, it's interesting. Tom, do you have any kind of comments on what Brent's saying? Or has said? Sorry, just repeat that again. You sort of cut out. I don't know if it was... My... Ah, I forgot you're, on, you're still on your Nokia 402. Yeah, yeah. You? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, do you, do you have, I said, do you have any comments on what Brent was saying? Any any thoughts or any further questions on that? So my, my thinking around slant is, yeah. and it, 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 it mirrors with what I said on Saturday at Your Voice with Teachers Talk Radio yes. and Slack, which is if you're a teacher and you're new to a school or you're a new teacher and you come in and you try and implement slant in your classroom, but your school doesn't have a policy of slant, the kids are going to look at you and go, what on earth are you talking about? So for policies like slant to work or star or whatever you're going to call them, they need to be embedded as a whole school policy. Now, I don't I don't work in a slant school, so I don't use slant. Um, I think that the components of slant are really, really important in terms of ensuring that kids have their full and focused attention on you. And some of it is just basic politeness and basic manners, things like sitting up and sort of, you know, asking and answering questions or whatever you want to, because people, you know, for some people's, the letters in slant means different things. Um, so actually, I think there's more than one way of sort of breaking it down. So I think some of it is just basic habits and basic manners and just very good stuff. But I think if you try and implement it as a policy, unlike something like cold calling, which I think individual teachers can implement really well in their classrooms, I think slanted has to be something where the whole school has to sort of back it and every single teacher needs to be doing it all of the time in their classrooms in order to get the buy-in from the kids. And that's ultimately what you need. I mean, I've seen, when I was teaching at Castlemead Academy in Leicester, which is a fantastic school, by the way, um, they they implemented Teach Like a Champion to the full. So they, they were absolutely, you know, every teacher was was absolutely doing it. And, and I saw for the first time um, kind of tracking of a teacher. I saw track. I saw students tracking other students. I saw um, all the different TLAC strategies, and it worked. It worked really well. Um, it was in inner city in in Leicester, um, and uh, the kids really bought into that. And I, I hadn't really seen that implemented on on that scale before um, then. So I was kind of like very open minded, and I was like, let's see what this is all about. And and actually, it worked really really well. Um, and um, I, I didn't see any kind of issues at all. I, I observed quite a lot of lessons there, uh, different teachers teaching. Um, I was next door to classrooms and around classrooms all the time. And yeah, and I saw a lot of I didn't I didn't see any any problem with it. And actually, it 
yeah, it was like it was the general approach of the school and 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 it worked well. But I do I do understand why people would kind of you know raise the 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 kind of some of the some of the concerns they do. I do I do see I do see the reasoning behind it, but I I agree with Brent in the sense of like the actual as long as it is delivered with that kind of professional common sense and and kind of like um implementation then i think it it can work really well i think it's i just think it's a good strategy you know um lucy i was lucy's been admining patiently through the whole show um so i wondered lucy do you have anything to say do you have any thoughts on this on anything you don't have to I just think the fact that Whiteboard Gate kicked off in the way it did, I'm still absolutely in stitches about this. And I think Doug's point on that was was absolutely spot on in that, I mean, I, I am a user as a primary teacher. I use them uh, when I need to. That's Do I swear by really them? Absolutely not. Lucy, it's not the time or place to tell everyone in the space that you're a user as a primary school teacher. It's not. It's not appropriate. Roger. <laughs> carry on, go on. User of mini whiteboards, carry on. You just you just have to undermine me at every turn, don't you? You just can't help yourself. God, so horrible to me. Honestly, this is this is what happens when 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 you're when you're a host. People just just you know, I mean, no, seriously, it's it's a, it's a great gig, by the way, and that's a <laughs> yeah, well in. Yeah. <laughs> just cause just you know undermining your whole strategy there, or just um. And I think that Doug's point on that is absolutely spot on in that, you know, in some cases they're great. I, I use them in, in maths quite a lot. However, in other situations, and particularly the pen situation, is just it, that <laughs> does my head in, as you can imagine. And uh, I also once um, thought I was being really clever and thought the child had better hand-eye coordination than they did, threw a pen for them to catch it, and it hit them square between the eyes, so I've never done it since. Um <laughs> Luckily, the child was very good humoured about it and it didn't hit them hard. So don't throw things in your classroom, people. No. Um, but no, I, th I thought it was fascinating. And and I always love a, a good reading list as well. So I've tweeted that out for anyone who is interested and wants to kind of, you know, or, order all of that. So that's all good to go. But other than that, no, I was just, I was just listening. I was just absorbing. I was just uh, CPDing my way through the evening, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Brent, uh, I'll ask you, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about this idea of sparkle just to finish off. Um, this will be my last little discussion point before we head off into the sunset. But Doug was talking, we talked about that TLAC thing of like um, Vegas. Uh, they call it in TLAC, this idea of like teachers who bring a bit of sparkle to the classroom. Do you bring a bit of sparkle to your classroom, <laughs> Brent? And how do you do that? Uh, I, I have no limits. I, I, I just experiment. Uh... I'll be honest with you. I just enjoy it. I, I really get a buzz out of being but in the how classroom. But how do you bring it? What do you do to bring the sparkle into your classroom? How it's just the well, accent, Rogers. The I use the low. accent. I you Apart this, from that, accent. I do the dad jokes. I literally, I have laid on the, the middle-aged dad jokes to such an extent. I was, I was doing a, a lesson today on healthy eating. And I was I was doing I was doing the Tom Cruise dance. Do the Tom Cruise dance in the movie um, Tro Tropic Thunder. Oh, I was God. doing I was doing the Tom Cruise dance in Tropic Thunder. I don't know how I ended up doing that, but the kids just weren't weren't they weren't feeling it. it was a PHSE lesson, and you know how they hit PHSE lessons. And I thought to myself, I've got to do something here. I just have to wake them up. So I ended up doing the Tom Cruise dance, and they looked. I don't know why I did why I did it, but I got their attention and back onto the lesson. 
I just think sometimes you just gotta you gotta run with it a little bit with the or if the kids I put music on the background, I'll stick a little bit of uh, Minecraft on. All of a sudden they're like, "You play Minecraft?" And I'm like, "Oh yeah, I've been playing Minecraft." No, no, I have my kids playing Minecraft, but I'm not playing Minecraft. I think you just relate to them and and sort of um have fun with them. That's the thing. Education's got far too serious sometimes, and yeah. and, we, and we've, we we feel under pressure, exams, stress, and, and I see a lot of my colleagues sometimes, and I, I do feel sorry for them. And they they go into the staff room, they go, "What lesson have you got now?" And it's like if they were given a free day off, would they take that day off? I wouldn't. I don't want a day off. I like being in the classroom because the kids are just amazing, and I don't think um I think some people just need to reflect on that sometimes and just enjoy what they do. And if they enjoy what they do, I think the kids just get a buzz out of people and enjoy it. And it's taking the risks. It's just having that sometimes at the back of your head saying, you know what, saw the consequences. I might get a phone call from a parent, but I'm going to do this regardless of the consequences. <laughs> Which is one of the reasons why I'm a union guy, because I know the discipline structure in and out. <laughs> well, Brent, I, I'm glad that I didn't witness you doing any dancing or, or anything like that. Um, yeah, sweet relief. Anyway, we have come to the end of the show um th- which brings me to my final point be a teacher talk radio host have a look at the top there you can see it in the pinned tweets um there's one that says be a host uh we are recruiting teachers talk radio uh you get a full induction from us uh you can host at a time that suits you we can be very flexible on that if you're a teacher if you teach in any capacity then we want you we want you to come on here we want you to host a show and uh, you, you pick the guests, you pick the topics, uh, you join a host community of 50 plus people. Uh, that's how many people we have at the moment in TTR. Uh, there's a lot of people. Uh, so it's great to be part of a community. I, I know a lot of um, hosts mention that as something that they, they like. Um, so you would be part of that. Um, and yeah, we, you get a full induction from us and loads and loads of support from people like Tom and Lucy and uh, Nathan and everyone else um, involved uh, in TTR. So definitely, I, I know Noreen's here. So if you want to chat about what hosting's like, then you can chat. To, you know, send Noreen a message. Uh, she knows the score, um, and we've got lots of other people who've been involved over the time as guests as well here. So definitely uh, fire a question our way. We'll answer it and, and definitely get involved. Um, big thanks to Witherslack Group and, of course, Charlie Burley. Um, he's also pinned. He's got his event on Saturday. If you're in or around London, definitely go over there. It's called Rewriting Wellbeing. He's got about 20 speakers there. Um, and, yeah, it looks an absolutely stunning event on Saturday. I know the venue's stunning because I've seen pictures of it, and it's absolutely unbelievable. Uh, tickets include lunch, refreshments, all the works, and it's this Saturday in london so get on there it's, it's pinned to the space and charlie burley is a great guy like he's if you want to listen to charlie burley just go on the teacher talk radio website type in charlie burley as in c-h-a-r-l-i-e and then surname burley b-u-r-l-e-y and then you can find the show that i did with him a few weeks ago if you're into your health and fitness then definitely have a listen to that because i by the end of the 90 minutes i was like yeah i kind of know why i'm getting big now um, and I hate you, Charlie Burley, for being so fit with your big six pack. But seriously, though, well worth um, listening back to that. If you are a teacher who struggles to keep fit and keep healthy and keep active, he he really reassured me. In all fairness, like at the end, I was like, yeah, I feel a bit better now. I feel okay. Like you know, he was he was quite a bit more relaxed than your average personal trainer, probably. So 
definitely have a listen back to that and explore that event. Um, Tom, have I forgotten anything before we go? Any housekeeping things? No, no, um, no. Great show. Well done. Ah, cheers. Bravo, Rogers. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks, everyone. And we will be back tomorrow morning, 11 a.m. Graham Stanley. Go to ttradio.org. Click listen live. He'll be on at 11 a.m. tomorrow morning. And we've got the space tomorrow. Space tomorrow night as well. 7.30. Brilliant. See you later, everyone. Goodbye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.